1: Hey everybody, welcome to another week of Trashy Divorces. My name is
0: Stacy. Hey friends, I'm Alicia. Thanks for joining us today for a different kind of ride in marital misadventure. We're celebrating Pride Month today with a few queer stories. Thanks Lady Gaga, born <laughs> this way. Two very different stories today.
1: Who do you have for us this week, Alicia?
0: National treasure, Meredith Baxter, with three divorces and then little coming out story at the end that'll warm your heart after all the trash that that nice sweet lady had to endure. Stacy, who are you bringing us today on the other side?
1: I have almost like an anti-pride story. It's the story of Liberace and the Palimony suit that happened at the end of his life. And I don't know, he was... I've never heard quite another story like that. It's a, it's, there's a lot, there's a lot there may not be appropriate for kids uh it's not vulgar but it's the themes are a little odd so use your judgment before we start on the episode
0: i do have this magic mirror i want to give some big thanks and shout outs to our latest
1: supporters who have just joined us at patreon.com slash trashy divorces thank you so much to tuva and b amy m chelsea b megan j and deborah s and big thanks to dorothy For our super awesome
0: Queen Elizabeth II Jubilee Tote. I'm going to be sporting that this weekend. Mm -hmm. Dorothy, you are the best. Patreon supporters, Trash Pandas, y'all. How amazing all of you are. Let's go ahead and get this party started.
1: Should we go, go, go? So, Alicia, for Pride Month, you've got someone with some real family ties. Oh, I do. Today I'm bringing you
0: the trashy divorces of Meredith Baxter, who is a national treasure, (laughs) and everyone deserves to be happy. Yes. Happy ending. Terrible
1: husbands. Oh, interesting. Okay.
0: The Emmy-nominated actress, who was one of America's favorite TV moms, Elise Keaton, has had a very bumpy ride throughout her life. Meredith Baxter has endured a difficult childhood with a mother that put her own acting aspirations far ahead of the well-being of her children. Then, Meredith had three failed marriages, one of which was emotionally and physically abusive. Meredith will then fight for her own sobriety after becoming an alcoholic while trying to drown out her problems. In 2009... Queers rejoice everywhere. <laughs> Meredith surprises many by revealing that she is a lesbian on the Today Show. Baxter said it was a late-in-life revelation, but it's helped her to understand why a happy, long-lasting relationship had always eluded her does in make sense. the past. It does make sense. Let's get into it. God, I love the story. Happy birthday, Meredith Baxter. Coming up on June the 21st, like this week... Meredith Baxter was born June 21st, 1947 in South Pasadena, California. Her mother was actress Whitney Blake, who had later become super famous and well-known in the 1960s for her role in the sitcom Hazel. Okay. She was the mom in Hazel. Not sure if I ever saw it. Before my time, perhaps. TBS rerun, Joe. Good stuff. Uh, Meredith's father, his name was Tom Baxter. He was a radio announcer. Meredith has two older brothers, Richard and Brian. Meredith's parents' marriage was strained all of her young life. Whitney Blake, her mother, was a frustrated, aspiring actress who was doing everything she could to get her big break, which ultimately never really does come, at least not in the way that she'd hoped for. Whitney, Meredith's mom, always prioritizes her career over her family. This is pretty terrible. She'd often try to pretend that she did not have any children because she wanted to appear young and sexy and felt like maybe being the mother of three would possibly take away from that image. She made her children call her Whitney. Oh, God. Okay. So that's awkward. When they would call her mom or mommy, Whitney Blake would refuse to answer. Okay. Ghosted. (laughs) At times in public, the children were expected to act like Whitney Blake was their aunt, not their mother.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So you can imagine this feeling of being unwanted. Yeah, you think? Had a profound impact on Meredith and her Mm
1: self-image. That is, I mean, there's like emotionally unavailable and then there's whatever that is. Meredith will say, I had this belief system
0: that was pivotal for how I saw myself in the world. I thought I had no value. I thought I was unloved and I thought I was unlovable. Mm. So when Meredith is five years old, her parents divorce. And after the divorce, Meredith's father is rarely involved in their lives. Yikes. Pretty much after the divorce, mom quickly remarries a man named Jack Fields, who is a minor Hollywood talent agent. This marriage though will improve the standard of living for Meredith and her siblings Because they move into a bigger house and a better neighborhood. But their new stepfather, not everything is good, is very harsh. And at times very, very cruel, not only to Meredith, but to all the kids. Later in her life, Jack would even end up coming on to Meredith.
1: Okay. So all of this is not good.
0: Oh, it's all terrible. But Meredith Baxter... A real hero, a legend. Mm -hmm. So during this marriage, the uh, remarriage, and throughout much of her children's childhood, Whitney Blake was absent, emotionally, if not always physically. She's unavailable to her kids, does nothing to intervene when her new husband, Jack, is abusing them. Because once she got the role on Hazel, she's rarely home at all. Meredith... Our stories about Meredith will graduate from Hollywood High in 1965. She'll briefly go to the Interlochen Center for the Arts in Northern Michigan as a voice student during her senior year before returning to Hollywood High. As you can imagine, this background sets Meredith up for a life of low self-esteem, perhaps causing her to make poor choices in her relationships. Imago. You watch your parents do it, you're going to do it until you know better. And we enter into Meredith's first marriage. Because as soon as she's old enough, Meredith Baxter was understandably anxious AF to get out of her family home.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Her young adulthood was during the mid to late 1960s when the hippie lifestyle in California was at its peak. Hippie life was appealing to Meredith like it was (laughs) so many other... Young folks of the generation and unsure of what she wanted to do with her life. Meredith starts taking classes at Los Angeles City College, but she's kind of uninterested in school and doesn't stay very long. So, well, the 60s are happening outside. Let's get a job, <laughs> right? So Meredith gets a job as an usher at the Cinerama Dome in Hollywood. And she starts hanging out with a guy named Rick that she had known from Hollywood High. They were back in the theater department together. One day, she's at Rick's house. Two of his friends show up. One of those guys is named Bob Bush. Bob Bush had also been part of the Hollywood High theater crowd, but was a few years older than Meredith, so they didn't really know each other there. In her memoir called Untied, Meredith Baxter describes Bob this way Back in high school, Bob was a bit of a hybrid, part popular kid. Part tough guy, part drama geek. He had slicked back hair and wore tight black jeans, tight white t-shirts, and pointy-toed black boots. I'd describe the young Bob as a sturdier, more sultry, 5'10", Tom Cruise. Hmm. The two, Bob and Meredith, will bond over their dysfunctional families and upbringing of their courtship. Meredith writes, Bob never asked me out on a date. This was the 60s. Nobody dated. Plus, neither of us had any money. We just walked everywhere. We'd literally walk for hours. What I liked most of all was walking in residential neighborhoods where I could look in windows. I couldn't get enough of watching families together. I especially liked seeing mothers and fathers with children, seeing them sit and laugh together, especially touching each other. It was just enthralling. Bob Bush is a musician, and the couple will move in together in a small apartment at 10,000 Honey Drive, just off Laurel Canyon Boulevard. Rent for this small apartment is $70 a month. Wow. 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 And it's Laurel Canyon in the mid-1960s. Whoa! You're in the middle of everything. Mm -hmm. Musicians are all over. She remembers that their neighbors are Sonny and Cher. Stephen Stills, David Crosby, Joni Mitchell, the whole Laurel Canyon crew, which, you know... I have chill bumps over right now. But although they were in a happening place, Meredith says that she and Bob never saw any really of their famous neighbors because Bob and Meredith are smoking a lot of pot during this time, and they also started doing a lot of Deximal. Meredith will say she never felt dependent on drugs, but one day she counted taking 26 Deximal pills in one day and briefly thought, what are you doing? But then she decided it was fine and continued. Dexamil at the time was a diet pill. It's pretty rough. Like, it's a high, high ticket amphetamine. Not, not sold anymore. <laughs> no, no. Legally prescribed for, like, keeping your weight down, but did a lot of damage to a lot of women in the 60s.
1: You know, though, walking together for hours probably made the drug unnecessary. <laughs>
0: Meredith is going to continue working. She gets a job as a cashier at a Beverly Hills cafeteria. Bob is working as a grocery bagger on Sunset Boulevard. They were broke, but they're happy. The couple will listen to music constantly, and they will quote-unquote dry kilos of marijuana in the oven. Wow. Meredith soon gets a better job in an insurance office, but is quickly fired because she had started doing even more drugs and would be completely out of it from taking a combination of pills that she didn't know the names of at the office. Eek. And with that firing, the couple could no longer afford the apartment for $70 a month in Laurel Canyon. Bob's mother, though, offers to let the couple live with her, but only, this is a big but only, if they're legally married. Oh. So on June twenty third, 1966, at the age of 19, Meredith Baxter marries Bob Bush. Very soon after the wedding, though, Meredith gets arrested with two of her friends for drug possession. Yikes. She had to spend the night in the Los Angeles jail before getting to make a phone call the next day, in which Meredith will call her parents' house. And when her mother answered, she disguised her voice Meredith did and asked for Jack. Wow. Although Meredith disliked a lot of things about her stepfather, She knew she could count on him more than she could count on her own mother. So that's something. Mm -hmm. October 1966, Meredith realizes that she's pregnant. So Theodore Justin Bush, whom the couple will call Teddy, was born in May 1967. And Meredith said she had no idea how to be a mother because she's never seen mothering done. Yeah. So in the meantime, Whitney Blake and Jack Fields get divorced. Okay. Okay. Whitney quickly remarries to Alan Mannings, who's a screenwriter. But Jack, Meredith's stepfather, will continue to stay in her life and is supportive to her and her young family, although it's complicated because the positions that Jack puts her in make Meredith rather uncomfortable. In November of 1968, Meredith realizes that she is pregnant again. Meredith realizes that her pregnancy also had happened because she had no money for birth control pills. Contraception's kind of important. Uh, Meredith knows she has to find a way to make some money now that another baby's on the way. So Meredith will begin selling Tupperware. (laughs) The work is frustrating. It's a lot of time and work for ultimately not a lot of money. But their daughter, Eva Whitney Bush, was born on August 6th, 1969, Two weeks later, though, Bob gets in a horrible car accident where he dislocates his shoulder and crushes his tibia and fibia. And to make matters worse, the new
1: baby has colic and cries all the time. That is a lot for like a 21, 22-year-old. To...
0: Young kid mm-hmm. with no good example that's ever happened. So once Bob heals, Meredith comes to the realization that she needs to do something to improve her life and the lives of her children So she begins to think about acting. She will write, I suppose if my parents had had a lumber store, I'd have started selling plywood. But my mother was an actress, my new stepfather was a screenwriter, and my ex-stepfather was a theatrical agent. Maybe Jack could get me a job. I never really wanted to be an actress, but what else was I going to do? I didn't have any better ideas. Oh, so many spiderwebs. Meredith was set up on auditions by her stepfather Jack, and one of her first auditions was for a movie called Harold and Maud, produced by our Patreon focus of the month, Robert Evans. Interesting. Ah, Meredith does not get that part. Oh. But after a few rejections, Meredith will land a small role on the CBS medical drama The Interns. That was followed by a role on The Young Lawyers on ABC and then a pilot for a spinoff of The Doris Day Show. With her increasing success in acting, Meredith feels confident enough to end her marriage, which had not been working for a while. There was another small, complicating factor in her decision. Meredith was having an affair. But Meredith says that she did not leave Bob for another man. She left for herself. The couple officially divorces in 1971. Marriage number one, Bob Bush, out. Now, after her divorce, one of Baxter's roles was as a guest star on The Partridge Family. (gasps) What? She begins to date, who else? David Cassidy. She had heard about David for years because his mother, Evelyn Ward, and her husband were friends with her parents, Jack and Whitney. Okay. Okay. Meredith says she couldn't remember if they'd ever met, but she felt like she and David Cassidy had a history together. Although, during their relationship, they rarely go out in public because David Cassidy is an enormous teen idol, which draws unwanted attention and literal hysteria wherever he goes. Meredith remembers David Cassidy as a very sweet guy, and she enjoyed their time together, but she didn't think she was ready for a serious relationship, But apparently it all comes to an end while he is out touring because she'll read about in the tabloids him and other women. But she acknowledges that, honestly, me and David Cassidy weren't going anywhere anyway, which is fine.
1: I'm sure it was tough in the moment, but what can you do?
0: we got a second marriage, David Burney. Married to the second husband was an Ivy League-educated David Burney, I'm so unhappy about this one. The two meet in 1972 while playing husband and wife on the sitcom Bridget Loves Bernie. Meredith will write, David was a majorly charming guy, intense, lithe, and graceful. And he paid attention to me. But I was most attracted to how erudite he seemed to be. He had so much confidence. He had opinions. He traveled. He knew things. He listened to Bach and Mozart and quoted passages from Yates and Shakespeare. If I'd have gone to college, I probably wouldn't have been so impressed, but at the time, I was dazzled. This was so outside my experience. The show Bridget Loves Bernie was a hit as soon as it aired, and the show is about an interfaith couple. 1972, this is about as hot as you can get, which draws a lot of curiosity, gains a lot of press coverage. And even though the show is doing well, CBS will cancel it after one season due to the negative reactions because of the controversial marriage between a Catholic woman and a Jewish man. We are just always having moral panics in this country. Bridget and Bernie is still the highest rated television program to have been canceled after only one season. Hmm. Isn't that remarkable?
1: Yeah, it's disappointing, but...
0: Now, many folks around the couple, Meredith and David, had already started to see signs of a dysfunctional relationship. They think David is overbearing, arrogant. They'd see him belittle Meredith. Meredith says he always made her feel less intelligent and less qualified to do anything. In a heated conversation one night in his driveway, David Burney hits Meredith so hard that she will fall down and she will recall thinking, I better not get up because he's going to hit me again. The next morning, Meredith goes back to David's house and apologizes for being so insensitive. Yikes. David accepts her apology. Gracious of him. Mm-hmm. But did not offer one to her. She told herself that his anger was just a reflection of his passionate opinions and that she would just have to be smarter next time. Well... It's terrible. Mm-hmm. It's terrible.
1: Even because though the, because horribly, there will be a next time. Yeah. Okay.
0: Oh, there's so many next times. Mm-hmm. Even though the show had ended, Meredith Baxter and David Burney continue to be a high profile couple with a lot of interest from the media. And although both the verbal and physical abuse was escalating, the couple will marry April the tenth, nineteen seventy four. Meredith and her two kids move in with David. He had bought a big house for the family up in Santa Monica Canyon, and Meredith, desperate for her kids to grow up in a household different from her own, she's determined to make her marriage work, determined to make a happy home for her children. Unfortunately, that dream turns out to be damn near impossible. David is critical of her children and sets all kinds of unrealistic expectations and rules. She doubts herself far too much to be willing to intervene. So you see the cycle of her mother and stepfather's behaviors repeating. Mm -hmm. And Meredith Baxter is playing her role perfectly by pretending everything is just fine. December 5th, 1974, Meredith will give birth to her and David Burney's daughter, Kate. David will not allow Meredith to have any drugs or pain relief during the birth. I, so not, not her and not her doctor, but David. Is... Correct. Has decided her medical decisions. Okay. Dr. David. Yeah. I want you to put a pin in that. Mm-hmm. So less than two years after Kate is born, Meredith was cast in the show family co-starring Christy McNichol. It's a welcome distraction. Meredith writes that she would have lost her mind if she hadn't had a place to go to feel valuable. But here we come, 1982. What would we do, baby, without us? Meredith is hired to play the role of Elise Keaton in the sitcom Family Ties. Do you think that David Burney is thrilled for her success? Is he not? No. (laughs) Instead of being happy for his wife's success, David responds by demanding that Meredith insist to Gary David Goldberg, the series creator, that... In fact, David Burney, her abusive husband, should be cast as her on-screen husband, Stephen Keaton. Meredith doesn't have that kind of power. What's wrong with you, man? She will write, They were testing actors for the part of the husband, Stephen. David started pressuring me to get Gary to meet with him. This was so awkward on so many levels. First of all, I had no influence on Gary. She's also terrified about having to work with her abusive and controlling husband. And quote, the thought of working all day with David and then going home to him too made me choke with apprehension.
1: Yeah, from the show creator's standpoint, it would, would you hire a couple to play a couple after their earlier show had been canceled? Like that,
0: yeah. But Meredith will do as she's told she will tell Gary Goldberg that her husband would like to be considered for this. And Goldberg's reply was simply to tell her we'll think about it. Now, obviously we know that it was Michael Gross cast as Stephen Keaton, which naturally infuriates David Burney. Gary David Goldberg later reveals that he didn't like David Burney and wouldn't cast him in anything because he quote, found the way David spoke to Meredith as so embarrassing that he didn't want to work with him, unquote. Seems reasonable. Now that Meredith has this new gig about to be going great, what mm-hmm. does David do? Pressures her to have another kid. Mm-hmm. Yikes. Meredith feels like she doesn't have enough time to spend with the three children that she already has. So maybe having additional children, babies even, who need even more time, probably not the wisest idea. Mm-hmm. And the more she resisted, the more David pressures her. David insists that she, (laughs) David insisted that she had no right to decide whether or not he had another child. Mm -hmm. He'd wake her up in the middle of the night and scream at her and tell her that if she didn't give him another child, he'd just go ahead and have one with someone else. Okay. I feel like she is now at a point where... Oh, she's heavily being gaslit.
1: Yeah, but also like, I mean, family ties around for a long time. Yeah. I, anyway, I'm glad that she has the resources to, I'm sure, eventually leave. Uh-oh. I just looked
0: at you because that's
1: not what that's happens. Not what happens.
0: Okay. So instead of getting angry, because, you know, if this would have happened to me, I would probably be angry, right? But Meredith doesn't get angry. Meredith gets scared. And she will say, I was so exhausted, upset, and confused. Oddly, I couldn't bear the idea of his leaving me. Wow. No, she's got, I mean, this is an abusive, this hints the hallmarks of an abusive relationship, folks. In March of 1984, Meredith was pregnant. She was 37 years old. And after the first ultrasound, she discovered she was carrying twins. Wow. On October 2nd, 1984, Molly Elizabeth and Peter David Edwin were born. And Meredith will adopt a new coping mechanism after the birth of her twins. She will turn to alcohol to drown out the pain of her dysfunctional marriage and all of her sadness, fear, feelings.
1: Mother of five now, is that? Mm -hmm. Wow.
0: She will write, I would drink all the way home from the Family Ties studio. I didn't stop drinking until the marriage was over. One day, on the set of Family Ties, her co-star Michael Gross made a comment about David, who had been in England shooting a movie for six weeks. He was coming home soon. And Michael Gross has no idea about the physical and psychological abuse in their marriage. And when Michael Gross reminds Meredith, like, oh, he'll be home soon, Meredith just starts sobbing. And at first, Michael Gross thinks Meredith is crying because she missed her husband so much. But when he realized that wasn't it, he told the production that Meredith was sick He takes her back to his house where he and his wife give her the support and help that she needs. It will still, from this point on, take Meredith several years before she reaches a point where she leaves David Burney. But eventually, with the encouragement of her older children, she will decide to leave him. The divorce drags on for eight years. Eight. Miserable. In her memoir... Baxter will write, I have some misgivings about revealing so much about my life with David here, but so many women have been in situations similar to mine, and I'm hoping that by seeing how I, too, participated in the abusive dynamic, others will recognize the pattern, realize they are not victims, and do have some power and find a way out. For the record, David Burney will deny all of her allegations and call her book, quote unquote, a kind of fairy tale.
1: Charming. Oh, God, it's
0: all bad. So marriage number two, done. Meredith will take her last drink, April the 4th, 1990. After dealing with alcoholism for many years, she will start a 12-step program and commit to her sobriety. Even though family ties had ended, her career is still going well. In 1992, Meredith will play Betty Broderick in the CBS movie A Woman Scorned. A Woman Scorned will end up being CBS's highest rated TV movie of that season and will earn Meredith an Emmy nomination. She also stars in several other television movies and miniseries. Meredith will meet a man named Michael Blodgett at an AA meeting. Michael begins pursuing her. And at first, Meredith has no interest in him and feels like he is a little quote-unquote creepy. Maybe should have listened to that one, babe, but that creepy doesn't last long, and soon she starts considering a relationship with him. But then he tells her something that presents a problem. He's married. Yeah. <laughs> Meredith describes Michael as fun and exciting. No one had ever pursued me like he had, and he lived up to all of the sexual promise. With Michael, I was the most important person in the room. It was the only time in my life I'd felt such an erotic connection with a man. That was the fragile basis upon which our entire relationship was balanced. It was all fraught with lies. (laughs) So after her nightmare marriage and eight-year divorce battle from David Burney, it is a little hard to imagine that Meredith Baxter was willing to try her hand at marriage for the third time. But... She does. And when she sees how Michael interacts with her children and how he listened to them and showed them respect, Meredith decided she wanted to marry Michael Blodgett. Now, of course, he had to get a divorce first. I was going to say. Michael had been an actor in the 60s and 70s, but is now focusing on his career as a screenwriter and novelist. The couple will marry October 21st, 1995 after dating for a year. That's where I need everybody to take a deep breath because (laughs) in 1998, Meredith Baxter is diagnosed with breast cancer. Luckily, it's caught early through a regular mammogram. And when it was recommended that Meredith undergo a mastectomy, her husband Michael loses it, freaks out. Meredith writes Michael was a breast man, he really valued my breasts. He was afraid that he was going to lose my breast or that I might be misshapen, which would be calamitous for him.
1: Why now, Why are all of her
0: husbands interfering in her health care? She will continue writing. Michael became so panic-stricken that he scheduled an appointment with the doctor and insisted that if she would remove only the tiniest amount possible... He would make a big donation to the hospital. You are
1: nope. I am
0: not kidding.
1: This is appalling. Your wife has cancer. You you let your wife get treated in the yeah doctor. Do what the doctors do. Oh my god.
0: Meredith will be the one to fulfill his promise, and she will write the hospital a ten thousand dollar donation. But she resents his behavior.
1: Yeah, I would too. Okay. So
0: you want to control my boobs, but then Meredith gets a little bit more information in which she learns that Michael is abusing prescription drugs Mm. and that he's getting prescriptions under fake names from fake doctors. Wow. And when she returns from dropping him off at rehab, her friend and assistant tells her that he had been offering her friend and assistant money in exchange for oral sex and asking her to show him breasts for money. Yeah, Michael's been asking the assistant, to, I'll pay you for oral sex and to see your boobs, lady. But the I, assistant had never been comfortable enough to tell Meredith that. Sure. But now that Michael's out of the house yeah. and in rehab, she's like... Hey, Mayor, I got something to tell you. Need you to know a thing or two. So now that Meredith knows this bit of information. Jesus. She goes back home and Michael calls that night from rehab. Oh, baby. And <sighs> says to <laughs> Meredith, you know, I started using, don't you?
1: Oh, no. That fucking
0: prenuptial agreement you made me sign. Meredith will ask him at this time, are you going to stay in rehab? He said, if I stay, are you going to be there when I come back? And she said no. And he replied, I'm out of here. And Meredith will hang up the phone with Michael and pick up the phone to call her lawyer and start divorce proceedings.
1: Yeah, I'm sure she's got a good lawyer by this point. (laughs) All of that was terrible. That was terrible. Terrible. At least she had him sign a prenup, though. Good on her. You want to get to the happy part? Is there a happy part? Do you want to get
0: to the everybody should be loved part? Yes. Okay. In 2002, Meredith realizes that, in fact, I am a lesbian and has her first relationship with a woman. Her AA sponsor, Mm -hmm. who is also a lesbian, suggested that Meredith might check out gay meetings because she said it's good to be around like-minded people, right? And Meredith is single, but she's kind of interested in dating. And she met a very nice woman and dated, you know, for several months. And it's during this time... Meredith comes out to her friends and family with many of them responding with what many loved friends and family do. Oh, huh, I already knew that. Oh. <laughs> it is always uh, mm-hmm. interesting to me. Like, oh, yeah, babe. Yeah. Congratulations. We already knew that. Wondered when you'd work that out for yourself. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Okay, Meredith will now meet her now wife, Nancy Locke, in 2005. You Ready? Nancy owns a construction company in Los Angeles. (sighs) Yeah. And she'd been struggling in her life for the last several years as well. Nancy said, I thought it would be a good idea to look at being sober. So a mutual friend gives Nancy the phone number of a sober woman named Meredith, who she thought would be able to help her, but she didn't give a last name because it's Alcoholics Anonymous. There are no last names. Mm -hmm. So the pair, Meredith and Nancy, meet for coffee, and instantly begin a friendship. And Meredith tells Nancy about her sexuality, but told her that she's not publicly out yet, and she's afraid to do so because she thinks it's going to hurt her career. But Nancy and Meredith, their friendship blossoms into a romance. And by 2009, Meredith is ready to reveal that she was a lesbian to the world. So she goes on to the Today Show and tells Matt Lauer that she was gay and in a relationship Why does it
1: have to be Matt Lauer? I don't know. Okay.
0: Meredith Baxter will say on that program, I got involved with someone I never expected to get involved with. And it was that kind of awakening. I never fought it because I was like, Oh, I understand why I had the issues I had early in life. I had a great deal of difficulty connecting with men in relationships. Then in 2011, two years later, Meredith will go on Oprah and discuss her romance with Nancy. She will tell Oprah that she was never really physically comfortable with men. Best part, December 8th, 2013. Nancy and Meredith get married in a small ceremony with close friends and family. The picture of them is so delightful. They're so happy. I can just look at this picture and it fills me with glee because you can tell just... It is just one of those photos that just emit joy. Joy. All five of Meredith's children were there supporting their mother as she exchanged handwritten vows with her wife. In her vows, Meredith said to Nancy that she was grateful she didn't come into her life until she was able to be open and honest with herself. As of today, Meredith and Nancy are still happily married and wishing them many, many more years of love and happiness. Meredith Baxter, national treasure. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. Those are the stories of her trashy divorces. Bob Bush, like, doesn't sound like a bad guy. I don't want to exempt him out of trash cans, but, like, both young. They're so young, yeah. David Burney, oh mm-hmm. my. You get... Yeah, that... Six weeks of trash cans. For the time you were away, you should have just stayed gone. And Michael Bloggett... 10,000 trash cans for the amount you were going to pay the hospital to not have your wife medically treated. Then your wife had to pay the hospital. Yeah. 10,000 trash cans. And you know what? 10,000 halos for -hmm. Meredith Baxter. National treasure. No,
1: I I like that she found someone in the construction industry because that person is unlikely to mistake themselves for a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) I just love it. That is the story of the trashy divorces
0: of Meredith Baxter and her long-lasting happiness and love. Mm-hmm. Because you know what? Everybody deserves it. Mm-hmm. Everybody deserves the good the good kind of love. Absolutely. Hey, let's take a quick break. We'll hear from our sponsors.
1: We're going to be back with another kind of pride story this month. Ish. Yes. See you on the flip. Summer reading season is upon us. Have you ever considered how your personal finances would read as a literary genre? Would it be a
0: sweet romance with a happy ending? Or a thriller you could only read during the day?
1: The clever ladies at the Oak Tree Group want to help you write your most compelling financial story. These three holistic planners have 77 years of combined experience helping people navigate all kinds of financial plot twists and turns. They can help you with a wide breadth of
0: financial strategies. Check out their website, www.TheOakTreeGroup.net, and see the experience and areas of expertise
1: these women bring to the people they serve. The Oak Tree Group is offering our listeners a free one-hour consultation on your financial script. See their website, www.TheOakTreeGroup.net, for additional contact details.
0: So, Stacy, you're going to tell us about the definitely not queer piano
1: player. Yes, no one ever figured out Liberace's secret. No, uh, that's not true. So, yes, it is Pride Month. Happy Pride, everyone! We're always casting about for trashy tales from the Team Rainbow side of things. So this week, I've I'm going to tell you about the first same-sex palimony suit. Ever filed. Was in, it really? In America.
0: <gasps> Exciting.
1: And it was a doozy way back in 1982. Pianist and performer Liberace, America's most popular entertainer at the peak of his heyday, Then he was about 62 years old. He was hit with a $133 million palimony suit filed by his alleged ex-boyfriend of five years, 22-year-old Scott Thorson. The case would drag on for the next four years with the closeted Liberace insisting throughout that he and Scott were never lovers. The period was kind of an unfortunate coda to a life that was both highly polarizing and highly entertaining. Liberace died in 1987, not long after a settlement was reached with Scott. And Liberace's publicists' efforts to obscure the fact that Liberace had died of AIDS was foiled by the Las Vegas Medical Examiner's office. Oh
0: my God. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It was it was a lot so uh this story draws heavily from liberaci an american boy by biographer darden asbury pyron hopefully i'm pronouncing that right um i read much more of this than i it's 800 pages i did not finish it but i read much more of this than i meant to it's excellent it, it's truly engrossing pyron talks about what a difficult biographical subject liberaci is because he was very private to begin with, but he was also completely dedicated to the dueling roles of being super famous to the point of self-caricature. I mean, his stage show was beyond camp. Like, it. yeah, anyway. So he was, you know, really committed to being super famous as well as to obscuring who he truly was to the public and the press. Competing needs there. Waju Valentino Liberace was born in West Allis, Wisconsin on May 16th, 1919 to immigrant parents hailing from Italy, his father, and Poland, his mother's family, although his mother was born here. Uh, West Allis was then a bedroom community on the outskirts of Milwaukee, apparently the informal boundary between the city to the east and Wisconsin's farmland to the west. His dad had been a French horn player in Italy and initially came to America by following his brother, who had settled in Philadelphia. In 1910, Salvatore Liberace was touring with John Philip Sousa's concert band now. when they arrived in yet another Midwestern town on the, on the circuit. And it was here that he instantly fell for Francis Zukowski, abandoning the tour and marrying what a story. It's what you do in 1910, I, mean, I guess. That's, yeah.
0: The heart wants, Stacey.
1: Yeah, well, it was not a great marriage. Oh, and, no. Uh They would ultimately divorce. Um, Salvatore, who went by Sam, was dedicated to music and culture, while Francis was a farmer's daughter from a conservative, traditionalist, sprawling, Catholic, Polish immigrant family. I feel like Francis was way ahead of the curve on being one of those greatest generation people, who saved every rubber band and like washed out Ziploc bags to reuse them because they had suffered so terribly in the 30s. But that was how Francis was living well before the depression hit. My word. Like when um, freezers rolled out, I think in the 40s they were pretty common. Liberace tried to buy one for his mom and she refused. She liked her her coal stove and her ice box. She did not like innovation. <laughs> I'm fine, I don't, need, I don't need this
0: newfangled stuff, kid.
1: Time-saving stuff, not for her.
0: <laughs> wow.
1: So Waju was known as Walter and Wally in the family. As an adult, he would go by Lee. So Walter began playing the family piano when he was maybe three, still in diapers. He had a perfect ear, and he could replicate whatever his mother, a skilled pianist in her own right, had just played. A toddler.
0: It's incredible.
1: Toddling around. His dad realized that he had a child prodigy on his hands and was super excited about it. So at four, Liberace began his formal training. By the age of seven, he could memorize complex pieces. And when he was eight, he his father took him to a concert from a Polish pianist that he, he idolized his whole life. This is, I hope I'm not mispronouncing this, Ignacy Jan Paderewski. Okay. During the man's tour of the Midwest, um, and he would become a mentor to young Walter. His talent led to sibling rivalry in the home, especially with his sister, whose heart was not into Dad's grand plan to make all of his children professional musicians. There was also another dynamic playing out in young Liberace's developing life. He knew early on that he was attracted to other boys. And worse, he was effeminate. He was not interested in sports. He had a speech impediment that was significant enough that his dad was talking to surgeons about how to fix it. Oh, God. And to hear what Liberace was into, all anybody in the neighborhood had to do was walk past his house, where more often than not, Liberace was playing flawless classical piano and could be heard from the street. He was certainly bullied and called names by other kids. At one point, he considered going into the priesthood, as so many Catholic gay boys end up doing. The biographer Darden Asbury Pyron quotes a passage from Epistemology of the Closet by Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick to explain this. She writes, Catholicism in particular is famous for giving countless gay and proto-gay children the shock of the possibility of adults who don't marry, of men in dresses, of passionate theater, of introspective investment, of lives filled with what could, ideally, without diminution, be called the work of the fetish. It seems like it was in high school where Wally really began developing the persona that would become world famous. He was obviously a gay kid in the 30s at West Milwaukee High School, and to survive, he leaned into his inherent artsiness. He excelled in classes that were deemed female coded, like home ec and typing. He would make and sell silk corsages ahead of proms. He got really into fabric and painting and cooking. He dressed flamboyantly. He just he leaned into all of the stereotypes and it made him very beloved among the student body. He was not an object of contempt. He was a student leader. Though he was personally quite reserved, like a lot of the kids that he, I mean, they were adults when they talked about Liberace, but they would say, like, he didn't really have a friend group. Like, he was friendly, but he was not really anyone's friend. Right.
0: Um, Interesting.
1: So, you know, Pyron says he was developing this camp sensibility that would define him as a performer for the rest of his life. And yeah, made him very popular at school, which is the most surprising thing in the world. He was also sidelining as a performer at the time. He was playing in some school band ensembles, but also just going out and playing solo in cabarets and strip clubs and saloons and even providing music on porn film shoots. Really? Yeah, he got picked up by the cops one time. Like, wherever he was playing got raided by the police. He was oh 16. My God. and the And, yeah, the cops took him home. His parents tried to get him to, like, stop going and playing in seedy establishments like that. And he was like, nah, th- this is—rhythm this is, is my life. This was also during some of the darkest periods of the Great Depression— So while his parents were really not thrilled that their little classical pianist was gradually evolving a more popular music style and a personality-driven stage show, they couldn't really stop him because they needed the money that he was making. Right. He was making good money. For a while, he performed under the stage name Walter Buster Keys. Oh, my. (laughs) I'm glad that was jettisoned. Good shift, yeah. He graduated high school in 1937. And it was not until late into 1939 that one night playing piano in a Wisconsin bar, he looked around the room and realized everyone there was male. Liberace had discovered a gay bar and his life would never be the same. In particular, he met his first boyfriend there who in turn introduced him to a wider network of gay men from all over the region who gladly exchanged phone numbers and told the young roving musician to give them a call when he was in town. In 1940, as a 20-year-old, he performed Liszt's Second Piano Concerto with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Oh, my. And as America turned its attention to the war in Europe, he was either itinerant, I think he was sort of New York City-based for the next few years, but still traveling extensively to perform. But he was working in New York, experimenting all the while with his act. By the mid-40s, he was showing up in Soundies, these uh, three-minute music video that are played on sort of video jukeboxes in bars back in the day. Okay. This was like, we've talked about this in a different episode. I can't remember which, but yeah, the Soundies, like you would put a coin in and queue up whatever. Watch I your, do remember this. Watch your music video. Yeah, it was a big deal. This story's fascinating. Keep There's, going. Yeah, mid-century stuff. He'd also honed in on some signature bits of flair, including wearing white on stage to be more visible. Steve Martin would have the same insight some decades later, I recall, displaying his trademark candelabrum on his piano and dropping to the single name Liberace, which he (laughs) embellished with Liberace, the most amazing piano virtuoso of the present day, as his stage name. He settled in Los Angeles in 1947 and played local clubs like Ciro's and the Macambo. I assume this is your wheelhouse. This is my juice, yeah. Rubbing elbows with all manner of stars of the day. He was constantly expanding his circle of friends in the entertainment business, where being gay wasn't a problem as long as you never mentioned it to a journalist. But as Liberace's fame grew, there was a Liberace TV show in the 50s that drew 30 million viewers an episode. You were joking. This earned him millions and millions of dollars. And his reputation as the favorite performer of Midwestern Housewives was cemented. There were just a lot of canny people in the world who saw through his thin disguise and his publicity teams. Is, is, there, a dis- is there a disguise? It's right. I, it's it's not that thin. There, there huh. is. There is a bit... Yeah, his publicity team had this carefully curated storyline about all the starlets Liberace oh, was dating. perfect. There was even, like, a quasi-engagement in the early 50s to a woman that, that his publicity team wrote these articles under her name about her romance with Liberace. Nope. It was all very weird. Oh, no. And then Liberace was like, I wish she had never written those and broke up with her or something. Anyway... Just a just a mess. So there were publications, though, who were not buying it.
0: I wonder mm-hmm,
1: why. Mm-hmm. You know, his team worked really hard to make sure he was escorting women to fancy premieres, and such Betty White told Joy Behar in 2011 that she was often set up to be escorted by Lee, by his management. And she spoke very warmly about the kind of person he was, but also that he was definitely gay. 100%. <laughs> Other starlets who helped him out in this particular endeavor included Sonia Henney, Judy Garland, Susan Hayward, Gail Storm, Maureen O'Hara, and Mae West.
0: Wow. That's quite an impressive list.
1: It is an impressive list. However, the nerve of some print journalists in the era opened the door for some kind of serious litigation in the 50s, including against the UK's Daily Mirror, The case was described by the BBC's John Kelly this way in 2013. Most famously, he sued the Daily Mirror over an innuendo-laden article by William Connor, who wrote under the pen name Cassandra, which described the musician as "...the pinnacle of masculine, feminine, and neuter, a deadly, winking, sniggering, snuggling, chromium-plated, scent-impregnated, luminous, quivering, giggling, fruit-flavored, mincing, ice-covered heap of mother love." That is quite a description. Yes. So John Kelly continues, The Cassandra article might be considered too homophobic to be published in a national newspaper today. And the 1959 trial that followed reveals much about the very different social attitudes of the time, not least in the repeated use of the term homosexualist during the case. Under oath, Liberace testified that he was not gay and had never taken part in homosexual activity the jury found in his favor, awarding damages of 8,000 pounds, which I think was about $24,000. I think it would be like two hundred k today. Holy anyway. cats. He also won an out-of-court settlement against the U.S. gossip rag Confidential in 1959. After that, outlet had just repeatedly taunted him as gay. Among the many catchy lines that Liberace either invented or popularized writing to these outlets and saying, I found what you said very hurtful. I cried all the way to the bank. one that he's especially known for. Perfect. Later, I think in the 80s, he would joke on Carson that um, not only had he cried all the way to the bank, but he had bought the bank. (laughs) So I'm not aware of Liberace having had any particular long-term lovers in this earlier era. He would tell Scott Thorson decades later at least according to Thorson that as a younger man he preferred older men but certainly by the time Scott met him in the mid 70s he pretty clearly preferred young men young enough that he could imagine them being his son Not gonna what? Yeah, I'm not gonna I don't want to get into the Perfect. psychology there that's that's a lot So let's meet Scott at long last Scott Thorson was born January 23rd, 1959, just 40 years after Liberace joined us here on Earth. A little bit of an age gap. In La Crosse, Wisconsin. Scott's mom suffered with bipolar disorder, mm. and he and his seven siblings and half-siblings had an extremely unstable early life. Scott ended up in the foster care system in California and like lived with one of his half-brothers in San Francisco for a while. Like It was...
0: A rough childhood. It was
1: rough. It was there. There was no one. There was no point of stability for him. When he was sixteen and a half, a mutual friend of Scott and, like Liberace's orbit, if not Liberace himself, a dancer named Bob Street, who I think Scott had been romantically involved with to one extent or another, took Scott to Las Vegas to see Liberace perform. It was 1977, and Scott, who was not familiar with Liberace's work, was absolutely floored by the show. Writing, quote. I was spellbound. The man seemed to be having such a good time that I couldn't help being caught up by the fun. His humor sounded so fresh and spontaneous, and he did such a terrific job of poking fun at himself that I got the impression he was ad-libbing all the way. It was pure camp and fun. Scott met Liberace for the first time backstage that night, and Liberace invited Scott and Bob to join him for brunch the next day. Liberace gave the teenager his private phone number, and some weeks later, I think after graduating high school, Scott called him. Liberace invited him to return to Las Vegas, which he did, and once he was there, he offered Scott a job as a secretary, companion, bodyguard, chauffeur, kind of a, be part of my entourage, but it mostly... Pay to have you around. Be my companion. Sure. It was really... He agreed, and Liberace seduced him. Yeah. Figured that was coming. It, yep. Same day. I don't. Oh my God, the same day? Oh, yeah. He was. He moved in with Liberace. Like, yeah. I don't exactly know how to really describe the strange highs and lows of their relationship. Scott suddenly had money, jewelry, fabulous cars, and an extremely rich, doting older man taking care of him. Scott would insist throughout the relationship and beyond that he was bisexual, not gay. But what kind of played out over time just looks a lot like a kid from a chaotic home ending up in something way over his head, but also wanting desperately to please maybe the only person who had ever made him feel loved and safe.
0: There's a lot of complicated dynamics Uh here. Yeah,
1: I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying it is apparently what happened. For instance, Liberace was extremely focused on appearances, his own in particular, but you know, appearances, and indulged in plastic surgery as the needs arose, which is how Liberace, telling Scott that he had always wanted a son and wanted to adopt him so they could be a family, hit on a truly interesting idea. Scott should get plastic surgery to make him look more like a young Liberace, his would-be dad, and lover. This is a lot. A lot. Worse, Scott was way too young for this and extremely motivated to please his patron and agreed to do it. No. He had also put on some weight during a long tour that he had accompanied Liberace on. So even before he underwent plastic surgery, the surgeon put him on what he called the Hollywood diet or the California diet, which is basically, as you would expect in this time period, a drug cocktail of cocaine, Quaaludes, Adderall, and Demerol.
0: Yeah, wow.
1: It did take the weight off. I I bet it did. So not long after starting this regimen, Scott underwent the surgery and woke up with a new unfamiliar version of his face on his head. He was still struggling to wrap his head around his own sexuality. And on the road, he was often dealing with the legion of Liberace's adoring female fans who all thought Liberace was single and looking to mingle with them and that Scott, who now looked so much like the performer, had to be Liberace's son. I, it's just, I can't. I, right, right. Whoa, whoa, trashy. Scott wrote about Liberace's unusual personal schedule, dictated by decades of his nighttime shows. Quote, We usually got home between two or three in the morning. It might have been the crack of dawn to most, but for Lee, the workday had just ended. We'd have a snack, watch movies, play with the dogs, or sit in the jacuzzi smoking and having drinks until he unwound enough to go to sleep, usually about seven in the morning. The outline had been established long before I arrived on the scene, and although I often felt isolated and missed having other people around, Lee refused to alter his restrictive and reclusive lifestyle. I'm trying to imagine this as like a 19 or 20 year old, and I can I can imagine that Scott must have wanted to rebel against it and find friends his own age and Also, how dependent he must have felt having finally established something like a family with a father figure for the first time in his life. But also, for all the isolation, there were lavish gifts to try to make up for whatever their limited social experience lacked. In Scott's closet, there were fur coats, 200 shirts, hundreds of pairs of slacks, dozens of sports jackets, 15 or 20 pairs of leather pants, leather jackets, 200 pairs of shoes. It was lavish. And still, Scott remained conflicted about his own sexuality and unsettled by Liberace's sexual veracity and love of experimentation. He suspected Liberace was cheating, but whether this was a founded fear or paranoia growing out of his expanding dependence on drugs is not clear. Liberace began to complain of his young friends' Jekyll and Hyde personality, suggesting that drug-related mood swings might be a factor. By 1982, Liberace was not hiding his wandering eye, and another teenage boy, part of a group called the Young Americans, was thoroughly enjoying the attention from the older man. Once their affair started, Liberace's entourage worked pretty quickly to expel Scott from Liberace's life. It was a head-spinning turn of events for him, and, of course, 22-year-old Scott was not in a good place with his addiction, had no real support network, he had been fully enveloped in Liberace land since he was 17 years old. Exactly, what is he supposed to do? Yeah, this, like, super loose family, no friends, like, I mean, just, it's rough. He decided that the gifts that Liberace had given him, the cars, the clothes, the rings, all of that rightly belonged to him and went shopping for a lawyer who agreed to take his case. The lawyer had to explain to him what palimony is. He'd never heard of it. We've, of course, covered palimony cases a few times on the show. We covered Marvin Mitchelson, the attorney who pioneered them, and Martina Navratilova, quite famously, has been hit with a bunch of them, probably among others. Anyway, effectively, palimony is alimony for a long relationship between people who never got married. And his lawyer filed a $113 million lawsuit against Liberace. Taking things from bad to worse, Liberace's team, as always, they've had decades of experience now, they were aggressive in assertions that Scott was merely an embittered ex-employee spreading lies about a great man who had had to let him go because he was a junkie. Oh, is no. basically... That's what they're saying. Yes. Mm. Um, which, again, I feel really bad for this poor kid who just head-spinning. When Liberace died, several paragraphs of his obituary were spent smearing Scott and denying that Liberace had been gay. Scott agreed to settle the suit in 1986 by then knowing that Liberace was dying... For $75,000 in cash, three dogs, and two cars, total settlement value is 95000 Yeah, not a lot. Not a lot. Apparently, Scott and Liberace met one last time before Lee died on February 4th, 1987, and made some kind of peace between themselves. Although I don't think Scott has ever really made peace with himself, I guess is what I'll say. Scott had somehow avoided contracting HIV from his former lover, but at least two others, including the guy from the Young Americans who replaced him, were reportedly infected by Liberace Mm -hmm. and would later die from HIV disease barely into their 30s. Scott, of course, would go on to write, Behind the Candelabra, My Life with Liberace, which was published in 88 and became an HBO movie in 2013, starring Michael Douglas as Lee and Matt Damon as Scott. It was very good. That was it was a it's on HBO Max. It was a surprisingly good I mean, is Michael Douglas bad in anything though? Yeah, it was it was just it was a really informative look at what this probably ill begotten relationship <laughs> kind of looked like in, in real time. Scott's life never got back to any kind of baseline for normal. He ended up being an important witness in the Wonderland gang trials. Which put him into the Federal Witness Protection Program in 1989. So there's your Laurel Canyon tie-in.
0: We haven't made it to the Wonderland murders Mm. for done and done yet, but...
1: Well, somehow Scott knew something about these murders happened in 1981. It didn't go to trial until 89-90 or whatever. And somehow he ended up being one of the key witnesses. So he's in Witness Protection? for a minute uh in 1990 he was shot several times by a drug dealer who decided to rob him in his hotel room presumably as part of a drug transaction he's been in and out of prison as an adult and as far as i know is currently in the care of the nevada department of corrections after failing drug tests while on probation so clearly that surgeon really helped him out back in the day lose a few pounds and the rest of your life. So this is the worst pride story ever, Worst pride story ever, Stacey. Liberace is such a complicated and baggage-filled character. He was hated by classical music snobs and homophobes during his life, and today it's the gay community itself that casts kind of a dim eye on the 40-year deception that was his public persona, fairly or not. I mean, clearly his career would have ended had he chosen to come out, but anyway... I'm giving Liberace 56 sequined trash cans for the number of sold out shows he played at Radio City Music Hall just months before he died. Energetic to the end, doing what he loved. He was 67. Like, he probably would have had a long career left ahead of him because there was just no stopping him. So anyway, that's Liberace and America's first same-sex palimony suit. That was fantastic. I didn't know any of that. I also, this never stopped shocking me. I mean, it just, this was a fun one to research. It just never stopped being weird.
0: You definitely delivered for the trashy brand today. Thanks. (laughs) Happy summer, everybody. Happy Pride. Happy June. Thanks for tuning in. Happy heat wave. Yeah, you're not kidding. Stay cool out there. Yep. Hydrate. We're going to be back, holy cats, on Wednesday with our season finale For Trashy trashy Breakups. breakups. Yeah. How exciting. I know you're excited about that story. Yep. Y'all can't tell you how much we appreciate you tuning in today.
1: Yeah. In the meantime, if you want more from us, you can check us out at patreon.com slash trashydivorces or see what we pulled from the paywall uh, at bit.ly slash trashcandy. Everybody have an
0: incredible week until we talk again on Wednesday. Keep those hands clean. And keep your
1: hearts trashy, friends.
0: Big love, everybody.
1: Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact
0: us at TrashyDivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at TrashyDivorces.com.
1: If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at Patreon.com slash TrashyDivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch Shop
0: and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly/